Hello and welcome to the Legal Frontiers podcast from the School of Transnational Law at Peking University. In this podcast, we offer research-based analysis of the intersections between law and transnational challenges and developments. And today, I'm delighted that we are joined by Professor Rostam Newworth, uh, who is a professor and head of the Department for Global Legal Studies at uh, the University of Macau. Uh, Rostam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for the invitation. Well, th thank you for accepting. The, the background to today's discussion is that late last year, uh, Rostam was kind enough to participate in a conference on soft law, a workshop on soft law at uh, the School of, of Transnational Law, uh, of course, coming from a neighboring institution, the University of Macau. And I was very interested, Rostam, in your brief presentation uh, at the conference uh, concerning this concept that you've developed in, and, and applied to a number of different areas of, of legal oxymora, uh, looking at, at the concept of oxymoron and then, and then finding oxymorons, oxymora in, uh, in the legal sphere. This, this struck me as very novel, but also very uh, opposite to the current world of contradictions and, and the attempts to find governance and to craft meaning. Um, so perhaps you could just begin by explaining a little bit this concept and why you uh, were attracted to developing this as, as a scholarly uh, project. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's an interesting question and a, a, actually a very long story going back to my time already as a student, uh, especially at McGill University, a master's student in the year 1998 and um, where um, my professor of international trade law introduced um, all of us to the concept of cultural industries in the um, NAFTA agreement at the time, coming from the Canada-United States free trade agreement. And then I did some research on that concept, and it later became my, my PhD topic in Florence as well. Um, so this cultural industry was actually, this notion was coined as an oxymoron um, by Adorno and uh, Horkheimer, partner members of the Frankfurt School. And then it made it uh, through several interdisciplinary discourses into a, a trade agreement. So it became a legal concept. And later, it also appears in, a, in the UNESCO Convention on the Diversity of Cultural Expressions. And this became like at the time, because the notion of an oxymoron is not very well known usually. And um, so 20 years, I encountered it. And since then, I have um, worked in different places and um, done research on a number of issues because my main interest was always in a way to find um, coherence um, in, in a very fragmented world and to overcome borders and limitations. And uh, here I, I then did a lot of research in different trade and pairs, for example, or in law and issues. And I at one point I realized more and more of these concepts uh, like oxymora seem to pop up. Um, and then I looked close, more closely at them and I realized they were used a lot in literature, Shakespeare, um, in the arts, contradictions are, are well um, accepted actually. And uh, then I also realized that more recently, 
even the sciences, um, like especially economics, uh, but also political science, um, some say even political science is an oxymoron, um, and, and in physics, in, with quantum physics and so on, more and more of these concepts seem to appear out of nowhere. And then I wondered, like, what about law? Um, because there's one intrinsic problem to them, that they challenge binary logic. Um, so the law is very much conceived in terms of um, binary opposites, good, bad, legal, illegal, lawful, unlawful. And they challenge that because an oxymoron is an, itself an oxymoron, which states it means kind of um, foolish and smart uh, at the same time combined in one word. And then I, I also found that linguistically it is related to a paradox. Actually, an oxymoron is in a way a one word strictly speaking, a one-word paradox. Then I came across the article by Walter P. Galley, written in the 50s, on essentially contested concepts. And I felt that uh, this was a useful article telling us that many concepts that we use in law, vague concepts, are contested. And we, we try to find a meaning through a contest of between two parties, like, like uh, proceedings before a court, and then to determine what is the right interpretation, what is the true meaning of the concept. So then I thought though that, like you said, uh, in 1995, uh, James Rosenau, he predicted uh, the 21st century to be one of profound contradictions and perplexing paradoxes. And there was also a book by Charles Handy in 1995 saying that this is the age of paradox. Um, and then I got curious to see has the discourse um, changed from the 50s to now? And so I coined this concept of essentially oxymoronic concepts because paradox is oxymora. There's in between also the Latin term of contradictio in adjecto and so on. So they're very linguistically, they're variations of expressing contradictions. And then I looked at the law um, because uh, they challenge, uh, of course, this um, binary thinking because it means you can be guilty and innocent at the same time and you can be right and wrong at the same time and and, and news can be fake or real at the same time and um, and then I collected many of them and you mentioned already soft law that have has also been qualified as an oxymoron and in my book that I published in 2018 um, the law in the time of oxymora I collected actually literature like um, and case law from all around the world, what I could find. And I was amazed how many commentators, it wasn't my inventions, but really like experts in different fields of law have identified so many concepts as oxymoron. So I felt like I needed to collect them and um, just to show whether there is a possible trend away from contestation to contradiction in order to find um, a deeper meaning. So that was the, the in a nutshell, my, the story of how I became curious in them. And, and I felt that there is something behind them, yes. And you have written about the, the way that, uh, that law has a tendency to follow dualistic thinking. Uh, I'm reminded of previous scholars who have referred to law as an autopoietic system, which translates external social facts into guilty or innocent or liable or not liable. What I'm struck by your writing, and, and particularly this concept of legal oxymora, uh, is how it attempts to address current challenges, current developments in technology, in culture, uh, which are not particularly amenable to 
dualistic sorting to to the um, the well-tried mechanisms of the black and white mechanisms of law in in the past and the present. The legal oxymora and the I suppose quasi-legal oxymora that you have spoken about are incredibly diverse. You refer to uh, the prosumer, for example, uh, both uh-huh. producing and uh, and consuming, and and this is an important development in renewable energy currently, particularly in the European Union. Uh, sustainable development. Uh, you've even suggested that the United Nations might be an oxymoron, which is uh, which is a concept that uh, that would challenge many. How do you see this concept of oxymora as as helping us potentially uh, to navigate? Uh, the normative developments of the present uh, in perhaps a more nuanced way, but a more realistic way than the binary thinking uh, that has often prevailed? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, the book uh, went as so far as to, I think I managed to prove that they are like increasing in number and, and the usage is increasing and, and the knowledge about them is also increasing. And in fact, even the United Nations, it wasn't my um, qualification as an oxymoron, it's, it's commentators who, who use them a lot. And um, at the end of the book, I, I enter more in, I didn't have time and space by the publisher to, to go more into these questions. Um, but I'm already thinking at one point, I hope I have time to continue that thought. But at this stage, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, um, first of all, they're very useful to address two current problems. One is a perceived acceleration of the pace of change. Um, so things seem to be like changing so much faster. And we see that in, in the, for example, the innovation cycles of various products. Um, like in the past, a new car came out every four years, now every six months and your smartphone and so on. So we have technology is a strong indicator for this pace of change. And at the same time of another trend, which is one of convergence. And this is very much matched by linguistic trends as well. Like I read that, uh, I think the Oxford Dictionary collects every year thousands of words and many of them are portmanteau words. So the mergers between two concepts and often they are also when it's opposite, it's an oxymoron. So language and technology seem to reflect here something important, which um, I'm not sure where this uh, originates from, but my guess is from our own cognition in a way, because language and technology is an, the external expression of like your creative thoughts, your, your cognitive processes, and they are at the same time influenced by what we produce. So it's, an, it's a, a two-way process between the external and internal, another opposition. And um, here I think uh, that ultimately, and that is the interesting question that I think um, neuroscientists and geneticists will have to answer. But um, there is this book by Lakoff, um, Metaphors We Live By, and and they show that uh, words have a very strong um, impact on uh, our thinking and with through that also on, on, on the real life. So, and uh, this is of course important for law because law functions a lot through language, not only, but um, mainly. And um, if, if these words have a transformative power for also the way we think, which I strongly believe they do. So I hope that, for example, an oxymoron can not only better describe um, the, convert, the trend of convergence in products and uh, technologies and the need for greater um, interdisciplinarity here, but also at one point um, change the way we like use or 
actually our cognition. And here I think of the book Homo Deus, which interestingly is also an oxymoron, like um, Homo Deus, and then a brief history of the future, I think. So two actually oxymoron combined in one into a title. And he says it started all 70,000 years ago with a cognitive revolution. And I think we are at the point where this is what I think is the main message from these concepts that uh, we are close to another important step in terms of how we think. And that means in particular for the legal field to not only reason in binary terms, and I'm not trying to suggest to replace this Aristotelian logic or dualism, but to complement it by like a new logic. And um, my former supervisor, Professor Glenn has written a chapter in his last edited book volume about a new logic, which is polyvalent and where contradictions are not necessarily um, impossible. They are also possible to be reconciled. And, and we have plenty of examples in law, in, in life, that um, very often contradictions are the very basis of life. So I hope that they will slowly um, bring us towards a greater, like um, a more inclusive uh, way of reasoning, which will then help us to, first of all, mitigate conflicts, uh, the violence between behind certain conflicts, and and to 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 be able to to make sense of concepts like sustainable development, which is the main challenge, I think, for the for the planet at the moment. Um, so that's my. At the moment, my speculation, but I hope I, I can in the future elaborate it on, on it um, in, in greater detail and with more uh, evidence. <laughs> Certainly. Well, a related concept, and again, I'm struck by your use of words here, a related concept that you've uh, developed is anantiosis. And, mm -hmm. and this, I think, is, is particularly relevant to your work on the BRICS. Perhaps you could briefly explain what you mean by anantiosis and how you use that term. Yeah, that was only I when I looked at uh, linguistic literature, because I'm not trained in linguistics, or um, I was struck by the, the different um, approaches to the concept of an oxymoron. Many, the strict definition is that it should be one word like oxymoron itself. So it should be something like localization, one word. Or culture industry in German, where it was coined, is also one word because German language connects nouns into and merges it into one. In English, it is often an adjective and, and a noun. And then still some commentators call this an oxymoron, even though I think, strictly speaking, it should be a contradictio in adjecto to use an adjective and a noun, or the other term is anantiosis that I found in, in some old book actually about language. So I, to close the gap between um, an oxymoron and a paradox in between, there is this uh, like a two word um, contradiction and that's an anantiosis in a way. But that's why I, I simplified it by calling all of it essentially oxymoronic concepts. So whenever you have a concept that is in the essence of which is, is contradictory. Indeed, and I was I was struck, of course, by this because uh, in in the original Greek, uh, an andiosi can mean opposition, but it can also mean objection to something. And in, in contemporary Greek law, the kerma and andiosis is a right to object or a right of objection, and that that's current, uh, for example, in the context of the general data protection regulation. One can object to one's use of data, so that's. Uh, how that's been translated into the Greek language. So it is interesting to follow oh, these good. linguistic threads yeah, uh, backwards exactly. and forwards across uh, across the perimeters of different languages. 
But I, I do want to, to focus a bit more on your work on the, the BRICS, Boston, uh, mm -hmm. because this, I think, has been uh, an area of, of development in cooperation and governance uh, where you have applied some of your thinking, but also, of course, a broader project involving collaborators. Um, so, so first of all, what, what are the BRICS and, and why is this an interesting topic of study for a, for a law professor? Well, this book, uh, we, we started thinking about it in 2016 uh, with my colleagues here, um, Alexander Svetlitsini and Dennis um, Castro-Harris, um, a Brazilian and a, a colleague from Eastern Europe, Moldova. And, and we had so a Brazilian, someone who spoke Russian, and I came um, before coming to Macau. I was um, a visiting professor in India. So I had come from, moved from India to, to China. And um, at the time, we... We all felt that um, the mutual knowledge between these five countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, is, 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 not, is insufficient. And um, it, we were therefore very happy about the Goldman Sachs, like uh, Jim O'Neill's uh, initiative of 2001, that they should, he had, I think, more of a, of course, an economic um, background and interest in them co co cooperating more closely. Uh, but we felt like in law, it is also uh, it, it is definitely no harm if they, they cooperate and communicate uh, because uh, they represent roughly 40% of the world population. And, and communication is, from a legal perspective, is never harmful, I think. Um, and so we, we tried to address this um, lack of mutual knowledge. And um, at the time, most of the literature was economic or political international relations, but very little was written on law and there was no book uh, to our knowledge. Uh, so we created this edited volume and invited um, scholars from, from these countries or whoever had an interest in it to provide proof that they are already like uh, engaging in some interesting also legal projects or ideas. Because uh, at the time, the kind of sentiment was that they are too diverse culturally, historically, linguistically, they're too remote. The irony was that they said like they're too far away from each other to, to effectively cooperate. So we wanted to first um, show that they have actually already started to cooperate in, in, in many like uh, very different areas from finance to like uh, even one of their first um, like treaty was also on culture, interestingly. And, um, and that was the, the, that project. Here, enantiosis was, a, I, I think, the, the right term to, to, to start to prove that the diversity is never an, an obstacle. It's, it's to the contrary, it's, an, it's, a, it's an, a great opportunity for, for the law to, to compare uh, and then to cooperate. Um, in fact, that is what I've learned a large deal from my former supervisor, Glenn, Professor Patrick Glenn uh, in, in Canada, who, who wrote the book on the world's legal tradition. So that was clearly my strong motivation to, to show that. Indeed. And you have written of the BRICS that, uh, and I quote, despite or perhaps because of their differences, the BRICS partners are making good progress and show vast potential for mutual cooperation. Yes. It's the, the same as um, like in, in trade theory, it's the, the theory of comparative advantage. Um, that is something that struck me always in this trade linkage debate that people uh, said, for example, cultural diversity cannot be reconciled with um, trade liberalization. And on the other hand, it is the basically the fundamental, the foundational theory behind international trade. Um, so 
again, here, Oxima help to see not the contradictory element or that the contradiction is not one of mutual impossibility, but rather complementarity and sets free some um, new, like first um, probably some lessons to be learned and then some energy to, to put cooperation uh, at a higher level. So that was clearly the, yes, uh, the idea um, the, that I, I had. And of course, today, this is an interesting year um, due to the pandemic. And I was happy that the BRICS just uh, held an online meeting um, last week uh, again, because it seemed that they were a bit falling asleep during the last year. Um, but uh, it seems to, to keep the momentum. But there is still a lot of interest in, in fact, what the legal framework for their cooperation uh, could be and should be. Yes, and, and particularly this year, the notion that partners are too far apart to cooperate seems particularly absurd given uh, how everything has moved online and the concept of distance has been, I would suggest, replaced by the reality of time zones, which uh, has emerged as a far more significant uh, mm -hmm. uh, drag on our work. But, but the movement of the BRICS, or, or rather I should say the, the significance of the BRICS in a legal sense is, is, as you say, something that developed later or became apparent later because it was originally an investment concept of Goldman Sachs. It very rapidly became a geopolitical concept. I, I remember during the global financial crisis, uh, I was based in London at the time and suddenly there were all these seminars with titles such as, can the BRICS rebuild the world, BRICS to rebuild the world. Uh, it was all it was all quite interesting and and then practical impacts of course you saw the BRICS showing their influence at um, meetings like the Copenhagen Climate Summit they institutionalized their own meetings and, and cooperation uh, but then later uh, the influence and the expression of the BRICS through law uh, with these early treaties um, in, in this decade or, or indeed just now the past decade um, so I, I would ask you what is BRICS law? Can, can we speak of BRICS law? And, and uh, I, I know that you've written about the problems of the concept of sources in general, and that certainly applies to this concept, but, but what is BRICS law? Yeah, it is an oxymoron in many ways also, um, but clearly I think what it has shown in this uh, decade of their cooperation is that the focus on economics and politics alone is, is lack the legal, um, I think, uh, field when it comes to maintaining some continuity and especially stability. So this is um, why I think generally, and this is not only applicable to the BRICS, this is an interesting question for global governance, because we have several models like the European Union, which is a strongly institutionalized and very legalistic um, project, and then the BRICS, which is very soft law, very flexible, more basically um, on, based on communication and, and, and these declarations, uh, non-binding and, and so on. So we see two parallel projects or ideas how to, to cooperate. Um, and I think ideally, again, it seems that, for example, the European Union is sometimes, of course, held back by some of these complicated procedures. And the BRICS, on the other hand, are, are lacking the continuity because of the lack of, of any institutional, for example, support. We Last year, we, we also, with my colleague Alexander, we, we compiled all the materials for the BRICS uh, that they have 
produced so far. And that was already very difficult because they were they are usually always published um, on on one website of the country holding the presidency, and then they appear disappear the next year, and and then you cannot even see whether there is a a, a rule set of rules or BRICS law, a body of BRICS law, and that's what we try to do, and what we've published as as this compendium of of BRICS declarations and a few treaties and every document we could find. So um, again, and that links to the important question today, whether I, I looked at uh, the debate on sources of law and uh, here it seems also that a lot of things are happening and we may have to, to open the, the, the list of what can be a source of law to maybe technologies and uh, even social media, some have suggested are already when, when you see presidents tweet and so on, then um, the question is, is, is that becoming a, a kind of source of law or through customary international law? Um, so we need a very broad debate and, and the BRICS are a very fascinating, um, I think, project for that. What I, I personally regret is that they haven't even yet created this virtual BRICS secretariat that they mentioned already several times and uh, even in, in some of the declarations. So this could be a minimum step, right, as you rightly say, uh, in especially in these times where like a lot of uh, communication is online um, and it would definitely help to um, eliminate what we said like is also because these declarations are very long and they repeat always the same. So I, I think it... Here, the law can first of all help to code by codifying. Like it's interesting that uh, big data uses almost the same uh, terminology as lawyers because we also code a lot uh, in a way that we simplify very abstract, uh, in abstract ways, very complex data. And so they should, I think, um, they could use a combination of um, like flexibility and 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 rigidity and uh, also like simplicity and complexity combine it by giving it themselves a, a minimum of institutional support um, and then exploring other ways as well which for them I think makes more sense uh, one has to look of course at the context between the EU and, and, and the BRICS and so on but and then there is a useful uh, I think contribution to the overall global governance debate which is very important um, because uh, I think there are many problems today. I'm sure you know better than, in, especially in the environmental area and so on, where where we need to to speak uh, with the global voice and not uh, the low. It's the same for the pandemic. I mean, it is it is strange to see that this global phenom phenomenon is is largely addressed locally now, even within states. So here another contradiction <laughs> in in the form of an oxymoron. Yes. Yes, yeah, so the potential contribution of the BRICS in different areas, whether these are economic areas, trade, investment, or uh, others, seems to be an example of an emerging multipolarity, uh, but also perhaps the absence of a global system. So there is the United Nations system, there is the EU, uh, and there is also the BRICS uh, in certain areas. And each of these may contribute to global governance, uh, although mm -hmm. I guess that, that requires... Uh, testing that proposition, but certainly the potential is there. Uh, and in the case of the BRICS and the rather loose collaboration in most spheres and the, the lack of a permanent repository of materials, um, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could say a bit more about the potential value of compiling materials and, and the contribution 
uh, of the book that you edited with, with Alexander Spezzolini, uh, but also the potential value of codification and restating basic principles for the, for the BRICS. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's interesting because uh, in the end, I currently believe that um, it is a, a global cognitive challenge uh, in particular to, to everyone. And, and for example, the, the, the problem of the BRICS internally to find coherence because they, they address a lot of issues. So it's not just limited to, to trade or investment or it, it's very comprehensive, which, which is what I think is, is their strength. That, and I hope here also that I've written on that and I've just uh, recently also Professor Heng Wang from UNSW published an article again where he mentioned the cognitive element of China's role in the 21st century uh, moving from like a selective adaptation to a selective reshaping and, and uh, here the perception and the cognition and the language and the culture and all this uh, plays an important role and uh, Macau is, is an interesting place in itself uh, to observe is a, is, a, is a micro laboratory for global governance too with different languages, different legal systems and where people say East meets West and where contradictions can, um, can be reconciled. And so here I, I hope that the BRICS can bring in a different also like due to their global presence actually because they are a global partnership uh, and then also in particular the Chinese, the Asian and uh, like culture of reasoning and so on to bring an important element uh, that complements European, for example, Aristotelian thinking and so on, which is uh, desperately needed for a global uh, level as well, because even when we look at the past 70 years from the United Nations and especially the gap to the WTO, we have this fragmentation between trade uh, issues and non-trade issues governed by the UN. And um, ultimately, like Professor Andrew Lang wrote in a piece in 2007, um, it is a cognitive challenge to transform institutions and to bring about uh, the change that um, is needed, I think. And again, language can be the first step to create incentives to also slowly, gradually change the way we think. And ultimately, I feel right now that it is less what we write in a, a document and what is the nature of the document, but what is more important is, is precisely the, the meaning we attach to, to the concepts that we use and, and how we put them into practice. So it's a, it will be, a, again, it is very difficult to adopt the way of the paradox or the oxymoron and, and think at the same time in, in dualistic and in, in, in more polyvalent terms. So, um, but that is the way forward, I think. And every piece um, has here a contribution to make to the, the puzzle as a whole. And um, I hope that precisely, as you said, multipolarity is, is the only way to achieve this inclusive and more coherent framework that the world needs, in which diversity is not an obstacle, but is the strength of the system, which I hope answers your question. <laughs> it, it Absolutely, it does, it does. I, I don't think there's a, a short way to answer these sorts of questions, but, but one of these areas where we see this multipolarity developing, I think, is one of the few areas of, of BRICS law that, that would definitely be recognized by an orthodox approach to public international law, uh, which is, of course, the New Development Bank, uh, created under a treaty and with an international organization. Um, and, and this body is, is interesting to me, not just because it has 
set out its stall as very much an alternative to the Breton Woods institutions in mm -hmm. some ways, uh, but also that according to uh, recent communications, it seems to be trying to expand to include non-BRICS as its member states. Uh, so we, we see here an institution nested within the BRICS, uh, but potentially of greater uh, participation. Uh, but I, I did notice that its, its uh, articles of agreement provide that the BRICS members must have a majority of the share in the bank, even if it does uh, get larger in its membership. So this, this is an interesting institution from the perspective of international finance, but also from the perspective of the further development of the BRICS project. Precisely. I mean, I think the, the BRICS bank is, is, is because it is basically the only um, fixed BRICS institution. So, and, and it is based on a treaty, a binding treaty. And here it shows that the BRICS has this um, vast uh, scope in terms of not only the, the fields they cover, but also the legal instruments they use to achieve their uh, goals. And it will be interesting to see whether this bank can achieve some of its, its goals like in a different way and, and bring in a, a, a BRICS element because otherwise it would just look like a, a, a duplication, an unnecessary duplication of maybe the World Bank or, or other inst institutions of that sort. Um, so I think it's a bit too early here but um, to, to make a full assessment, but it's clearly a good way to, to move forward and to see that they can make uh, a difference because that's what I said in the book also, like it's not the diversity that matters. It's the difference that you can make that, that makes ultimately like needs to be assessed uh, in terms of uh, the efficiency and legitimacy of, of an additional institution in, in this global framework, which has enough actors, but not enough coordination between them in a way. Yes. Uh, well, a final question, if I may, Rostam, and you mm -hmm. already mentioned that Macau is in many ways a unique place. What is it like to be working on questions of global law uh, in this very unusual, very context-specific and historically dense uh, and relatively small part of the world? Yeah, I think um, it's... Uh... At the moment, of course, um, I, I sometimes joke that um, like a global legal studies department is also an oxymoron because at the moment um, the world is very much uh, localized probably or localized in many ways. But so sometimes it's like Rosenau said, like I think he called it hope embedded in despair. It's, it's on the one hand, one has uh, doubts about the role of a global law um, but at the same time, I think it is needed uh, as, as much as it has never been needed before, because we we need to address more important uh, issues now and in the future. And here only a, a global framework to study it, which doesn't exclude the local, of course. And Macau is a wonderful example for that, because it is a, a a global actor by definition. It is it is part of this one country, two systems. So it is it is clearly a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China. So a very local, and it is really so small that you can must call it a local. But at the same time, due to the basic law and the, the autonomies that are 
enshrined in it. Uh, it is also a member of the World Trade Organization. So it is an ideal place to, to study like the law in, in terms of contradictions. And then it is also an amazing um, microeconomy in many ways um, with, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the single sector of the, of the gaming industry or tourism industry, but also with uh, many other like... Um, fields of um, especially now in the context of uh, the greater bay area and so on it, it um, there are a lot of interesting developments going on where where all this um, local global and also like differences in the legal like systems in the relation to the people's republic and to hong kong and so on um, come to the fore so it is an amazing place to study that and even the faculty we are i remember i was a student at, at mcgill which was a bilingual faculty and we are tri or quadrilingual here uh, when you walk through the floor you can hear like uh, mandarin cantonese uh, portuguese english and um, it, it is a really a very useful um, micro laboratory for doing research on on all the global issues as well because uh, as i said nowadays the the problems are like um, local and global at the same time and we need to address them together and find the the right uh, common cognitive language, I think, to, to address them and solve the problems. Well, Professor Rostam Newworth, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.